0: Uh, again, it's good to be back. Uh, two Sundays off for a pastor is is good, um, but it also has me yearning to get back. I think uh, this, is, this is the Lord's calling on my life, is to teach and preach the Bible. And so, uh, thankful for Rick Smith and uh, Gabriel Gonzalez Camargo for filling the pulpit. Very apt and gifted men, and so I hope you were blessed by their preaching. Um, I mentioned earlier uh, that we are uh, wrapping up a sermon series uh, titled The Seven Deadly Sins and how Je- uh, Jesus rescues us from them. Uh, today, uh, the final deadly sin is lust. So if you're here today as a visitor, um, let me begin by apologizing. Uh, <laughs> this is not always the topic on the table. Uh, you know. At at a, maybe just a veiled attempt to put you at ease. Maybe you've walked into this room as a visitor thinking, man, this is it's about to get dicey in here. Um, let me just put you at ease. Uh, my mom's here. So <laughs> there's that. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I do think this is a very... Very relevant thing for us to discuss, and I do think that the church ought to be discussing very relevant things like this, so uh, I will not shy away from using perhaps some language today, uh, appropriately um, language. I realize we've got some younger folks in our crowd, um, and so. Uh, but parents, I, I promise you this, they're, they're not going to hear any words out of my mouth that they haven't already probably heard. Um, and so that's the reality uh, of where we're at. And so, uh, I've chosen a passage this morning um, to deal with a very rich subject. I've, I've chosen a very rich text of Scripture. I think the best way to address hard problems that we face is to, to really wrestle with hard passages of Scripture, uh, a really robust theological Scriptures, and so today we're going to go to the book of Romans. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open up to the New Testament, Romans. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We'll project the words there for you. Uh, Romans is is really the 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 centerpiece, one of the Apostle Paul's centerpiece writings. Uh, if you've never read it before, I would encourage you to read it. Um, we're going to look at Romans chapter one this morning. I'm going to begin reading in verse sixteen and go down through verse. Uh, 25. um, There's a couple reasons I chose this passage. One is that it provides a bit of a platform to discuss why lust is a reality. Um, And so it kind of goes underneath the sin a little bit, the why of the sin, not just what the sin is, but the why of it. But it also points us very, very up front and center to to the where lust is redeemed portion of it. And so it doesn't just really leave us with the the punch in the stomach feeling, but it really points us to the hope of redemption that we have in Jesus. And so let's look at the passage this morning. Um, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, going down through verse 25. The Apostle Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that's the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we turn now to the only source of life, the very words of God, breathed out, inspired, and kept by you, preserved for your people. We need to hear your voice. So Lord, would you do that today? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In elementary school, I believe it was fourth grade-ish, um, I was involved in a devious plot to pull the fire alarm. My mom's here, so we're just throwing all the cards on the table today. Uh, Colette Park Elementary School, I remember it vividly like it was yesterday. I was not the one that pulled the fire alarm. However, I was involved in it. I mean, we pulled it, firemen, the whole drill, it was, it was bad. It was bad. I remember sitting in Mrs. Whiteside's, the principal's office, and just fearing what what just happened. How did I get involved in this plot? And you know, it was that it was the plot was that simple. Let's pull the fire alarm and see what happens. Uh, we just let's roll the dice, and and we did. I don't think we did any jail time. It, we, I don't think we did jail time, um, but I was I was scarred by it. Um, but as as a young as a young boy. You know the, the curiosity got me, and um, I just needed to see. I just needed to see what would happen when that alarm that said "Don't pull me" was pulled. Um, sometimes in the Christian life, we need to pull the fire alarm, and um, we pull the fire alarm on a lot of things out of curiosity. But 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 this topic particularly is really just it's just the fire alarm. There's a lot going on in the world we live in. Um, I don't have to tell you this, but I will because I have the floor. Uh, We live in a hyper-sexualized world. We do. We live, most of us were born, or at least have been, at least living, after the Hugh Hefner kind of era, where promiscuity and, um, you know, indulgence was the arrival of freedom, right? We live in a time when the agenda behind the birth control pill, which I'm not saying the birth control pill is evil or inherently sinful, I'm not saying that, but, but it has pushed this agenda towards a no strings attached, no consequences for the intimacy type of scenario that we live in. We live in a time when you go to the grocery store or maybe you have subscriptions to these magazines and you know Cosmopolitan and or Men's Health on the cover, there's always tips and techniques for your bedroom life. Uh, It's become cold and clinical, and it's become all about self-fulfillment and pleasure. It's the world we live in. And then to top it all off, we live in the dawning of the World Wide Web. So accessibility is off the charts for things to be seen and known and experienced. It's a click away. Uh, It's anonymous. It's private. Um, And so here we are in this really this perfect storm for our flesh to be fed. And we're living in it. And um, the line really between lust and, and love in a pure, biblically God-ordained design for that love, that line has really been just lost. I mean, it, there is no real line anymore. We really don't have that distinction the, even the moral compass is just spinning out of control. And so if you've, if you've been with us for this sermon series, and even if you haven't, the one takeaway, at least from my preparation and preaching, has been that sin always, always makes really big promises to us. It does, and that's why it's enticing. But it also always, always underdelivers, Always. And so it, it always makes promises. So, so lust makes promises that joy and fulfillment and delight are at the end of it but it always underdelivers it leaves us sad and it leaves us lonely and it leaves us despairing of hope and so here as we look at this passage today my main thing i want to communicate to you today is this that the best answer to those lies of lust is the promise of a God who satisfies us with his love. The best answer to the lies of lust is the promise that God makes to us that he will satisfy us with his love. Um, really, the passage, we're going we're to actually kind of work backwards a little bit. Uh, we're going to look at kind of the where lust comes from. Why, why is this something that we as people struggle with? Um, And so we're going to look kind of down at the bottom portions. We'll look at the source of lust first. And then we're going to go back up to verses 16 and 17 and look at the source of love. So let's talk about the source of lust here in verses 18 down uh, through 25. Um, I followed on Facebook this week uh, a little thread of conversation between some friends. I'm, I'm, I'm the troll on threads. I don't usually get involved in that. But this one was particularly theological in nature, so it kind of piqued my interest. And uh, the discussion was on judgment and hell and wrath and all of these things. And, and there were a variety of views and discussions, some biblical, biblical some just emotion based. But they were taught the, the, the gist of the thread was the wrath of God is something that is hard to understand and most people want to reject. And Paul here, at the very beginning of this letter, introduces that, that wrath is being revealed. And um, oddly enough, if you look at this passage, um, the problem isn't just lust. So it so uses the language of lust, we'll get there. But God actually says that before wrath is revealed, he revealed himself. And so it talks about how in verse 19 how God can be made known. In fact, he's made himself vividly clear through the things in the world. So the things that he has made, and the result of that is everybody knows God. I mean, just soak that in for a moment. There there is no such thing as an atheist. (laughs) Like, God doesn't believe that atheists exist. How about that for turning that onto an argument? And here's what Paul begins to show us is that that God is revealing his wrath not against just our sinful activity, we'll talk about that, but he's he's revealing his wrath against the why of our sinful activity. So the sin under the sin is this, unbelief. So before God's wrath comes for our activity, it's actually coming for our unbelief. Now, I think a lot of people, and maybe this is you, think that the logic of the Bible sounds something like this, dealing with God's anger and his just judgment, all those things. That, that the logic of the Bible sounds something like this. God is angry because you're full of lust, or you're full of fill in the blank. God is angry because you have pride or anger or envy or greed or any of these things that we've been talking about. That's how most people think that the Bible is teaching us about sin. But what Paul is actually teaching us in Romans 1 is the logic of the Bible sounds more like this. God is wrathful and angry because you are full of unbelief. And your unbelief then results in sinful activity. So your unbelief has filled your heart, which then results in verse 24, God giving them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity. And so when we talk about sin as the church and as Christians and people who claim to want to follow the Bible and what Jesus teaches and what the apostles were teaching, oftentimes we want to jump to the behavior before we get to the heart. And so we want to put to death the sinful activity, which is good and right, but we never really experience true victory over that because we've avoided step one. And it's addressing the heart that's filled with unbelief. Here's the nature of unbelief and then what results in lust. So unbelief and lust exchanges eternal glory for temporal glory. Did you catch that language as I was reading it? That we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie? In other words, what Paul is teaching Christians is that lust... Is an attempt to get glory. It's an attempt to taste transcendence. And here's here's my working definition of, of what lust is. So, lust is the habit of engineering happiness for myself. It's my wants, it's my needs, it's my desires, it's my pleasures, it's my way. It's simple. It's uncomplicated, and it revolves around me. Um, popular songs, I mean, I'm sure I could just go off the rail on all of them. Uh, one that pops up on our radio frequently, Your Body is a Wonderland, John Mayer. Maybe some of you listen to that. Your Body is a Wonderland. It's, it's my playground. I have fun on it. It's what I do. It's for me. It's my entertainment. See, lust is a party for one with me at the center of it. Lust treats other people as their your personal means to, to an end of pleasure. Lust is exceedingly self-centered. It aims at receiving all pleasure and giving none to anybody else. Um, it always needs more. So lust is, is not ever gratified. Um, I think a lot of people, and science is on our side on this, but I think a lot of people think that it's just that human instinct that animalistic thing that just has to be kind of itched. like we we have to fulfill this it's just who we are as people and so the more we the, the more it gets satisfied the, the the better we'll feel and the, the reality is it's the opposite it's kind of like eczema with skin the more you scratch the worse it gets you get you, you go down this spiral of darkness and depression and it consumes you um So pornography is creating addicts that can't kick the habit because science tells us that it's stronger than drugs, that it's like a drug. And so here we are in this world swirling around us, changing all of our views on sexuality and genders and all of the things that are going on around us, and the Christian sits in this storm, and we just try to weather it. And here's the the tricky thing about this particular sin. Is it whispers this little subtle lie that it's not really hurting anybody. Right? This is the sin that's private. It's what I do at home. Or this is the sin that it's in my mind, in my heart. It's not really hurting anybody. My wife doesn't know about it. This is the sin that tells us it's not doing anything to hurt anybody and so so you continue in it. But here's what sin does, and here's what lust particularly does. It does a couple things to you, and it does a couple things to other people. The first thing that it does to you is that it pollutes you, and it poisons you. And I don't just mean in a, in a filthy, I'm dirty, I'm unacceptable kind of way. I mean like in a, it's filling you with garbage, and that turns into sadness, and despair, and hopelessness, and darkness. And so it pollutes you. And then after it pollutes you, it alienates you. It brings you into loneliness. So the the very big promise that it made, joy, delight, satisfaction, pleasure, has brought you to yourself. You're in the shadows of loneliness, all alone, your intimacy level has been reduced to the size of a screen, you know, to the look of an eye, to the gesture of a heart. But it doesn't just hurt you, it hurts other people too. When this thing has its claws in you, it limits your capacity to love other people because it takes so much of you. And so when this thing is in you and it has you, You are unable to do the very thing that you want. Intimacy, relationship, love. It sabotages not just your love for other people, but ultimately it sabotages your relationship with God. It says, I'll find my source of satisfaction somewhere else. Thank you very much. And so why, after all this kind of vague appeal... To lust, why is it so appealing to us? Why is it that we as people struggle with it? And there's a couple things I want to just touch on. The first is it's easy to hide for a while, it's easy to hide for a little bit, right? So, this is something that your thought life isn't always publicized. You know, your internet history, you know how to clear. You know, the, the way you, your spending patterns are, you, you've, you've shuffled that around, you can figure that out. But sin will find you out. You'll be discovered. But, but, but it's not just that it's easy to hide and like it's this guilty pleasure that nobody knows about and so I'll just do it. But here's really why, why we like this. And I mentioned this earlier, but I'll mention it again. It's, it's really a last-ditch effort to taste something glorious. All right. so God... Designed us to experience pleasure and joy. I mean, without getting graphic, the way the bodies were made and we experienced these things in our flesh was designed by God. I mean, that's a wonderful thing that God experienced us or created us to experience delight and pleasure like that. And we, in an attempt as fallen human beings, have taken that and we've corrupted it. We've twisted it like we do with everything. And it's this last-ditch effort for you to taste something transcendent because it's promising you joy and fulfillment and satisfaction, but it's leaving you desperate, sad, and lonely. And so on the one hand, yes, we're humans, and yes, God designed us for that, but he didn't design us to experience it that way. So, if that is the source of lust, if, if unbelief is the sin underneath the sin, which comes out in our actions of lust, well, where, where's the source of love? Well, let's look at the source of love for a moment in verses 16 to 17. Um, the church, broadly speaking, whatever branch or arm that looks like for you, um, rarely talks candidly about these things. Um, And because we're so quiet about things like this, we come across as a a couple of ways. We come across as really prudish type of people, like, just don't talk about it. Let's just act like that doesn't happen. Um, We come across as very repressive type of people and oppressive type of people. (laughs) And so when topics of sexuality and gender and marriage and all these things come up, we are viewed as, you know, these just picketing type of people who have our views. And so we're oppressive and overbearing and, uh, and we're outdated, right? We're antiquated about our views. And so this is the view the church has. Now, think about the culture. I mean, for a moment, the culture we live in, and we mentioned this in the prayer, the culture that we live in doesn't think that lust is a thing to be repented of. They wouldn't use that language, but there's nothing really wrong with it. It's human instinct. It's how we were, well, they wouldn't say design, but it's how we came into being or whatever. But there's nothing really wrong with it. It's just us fulfilling the way we need to be fulfilled. And so the church has this, really this poor reputation that says sex is bad and don't talk about it and let's, let's not deal with it or, or when dealing with particularly the sinful bent of this, we just say, well, just stop, right? Or just stop doing it. You know it's bad, you know it's wrong, so just stop. That's, that's so asinine. I mean, that is so offensive to people who have, they're really gripped by this, right? Like, just stop doing it. Okay, thanks, that's real helpful. <laughs> but here's, um, here's what we need to look at. Is, is, is there a source or is there a, a resource that can change us? Is there a power that can change us? Because typically when approaching a subject like this, our conversation would sound like, well, you need to install internet filters or... Um, You know, you need to uh, just have a computer out in the living room. It's great. Or you need to downsize to a flip phone so you don't have a phone. Or all of these things that we do, these measures we take, which are fine. Nothing wrong with putting measures. Those are good, probably right things to do. But is behavior modification really going to solve our problem? Is that really going to change us? You know, it might give us a two-week streak of good behavior. We might do better or feel good about ourselves, but the reality is we're not going to change. And so, here's the source of change. Surprise, surprise. It's the good news about Jesus. Let me just look at verse 16 and 17. Okay, let me just read it again. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation. To Everyone who believes. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So, how do we connect the good news to this particular subject? Here's how the love that you and I have been looking for our entire lives, that we think is discovered in lust, is actually found in the person and work of Jesus. So, the love that you and I long and yearn for. The transcendence and the glory, yet the intimacy and the acceptance that we think lust offers us is actually discovered in the good news of Jesus. I mean, think about the way that Jesus relates to his church. What's the language he often uses? It's the language of marriage. It's the language of intimacy. It's the language of relationship. And so here Jesus comes and he reveals himself to be a faithful spouse to spiritually idolatrous people right so he's the faithful one to people that cannot keep faith the people that continually turn their backs on him and continually run to other gods to find sources of satisfaction jesus stays faithful to and he's not just faithful but then he's forgiving and so Jesus hung out with the shadiest types of people. Why? Because they knew that his mercy was not earned. And so when you begin dealing with Jesus and you think mercy is something that he must give you, you're no longer talking about mercy. You're now talking about earned effort towards receiving God's love. And Jesus, because he was forgiving, he would love people in spite of their circumstances. The saltiest and shadiest people in town. And then, of course, Jesus wasn't just faithful. He wasn't just forgiving, but he was flawless. I mean, he had pure eyes that never lusted, ever. He had women. I mean, this, so Jesus was a single Jewish rabbi. He was not married. Um, and he had women at, all around him all the time. He was a man. And so this isn't just something that men struggle with. Women, you struggle with this too. This isn't a man's sermon. But Jesus was a man, and he knew what it was like to be tempted to lust after women, and he never did. He never looked at them with the eyes of impurity. He was flawless. And so here's the good news, and here's the source of power that you need to overcome a sin like this. The good news presents us with a love that exchanges the filth of our unrighteousness and provides us with a spotless covering of righteousness. So so Jesus, in our exchange of a lie for the truth, he took his exchange by taking our sin, our filth, our impurity, our uncleanliness, I think I made that word up, our uncleanness, and he took it upon himself in order to provide a cloak of righteousness for his people. And so people that struggle with lust. You know, this isn't just men. This is the stay-at-home mom who thinks about what it would have been like if she married that guy, right? It's no wonder they're flocking to 50 shades of gray. And what would it have been like to marry the chiseled wealthy guy instead of, you know, this guy? Um, you know, this isn't just the guys that are in, just, just thrown into the, to the, to the click, clicking and clicking and the viewing and the viewing. You know, this is guys who just like to just linger a little bit on the looks. Right, right, I'm just appreciating God's good creation here. God doesn't need you to do that. He doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't. You know, so, so the capacity for this sin to get into us Is this overwhelming? And so how does it change us? How can the good news about Jesus providing a cloak of righteousness change us? There's two ways it happens. It happens first by confession. And so the nature of this sin is that it's private, that it's anonymous, and that it can be hidden again only for a while. And so the reason you will never, you you can turn new leaves over and start resolutions and do every parameter in the book known, you will never, ever experience final victory over this particular sin till you confess with your lips. And I know that's hard. And so that I don't know what that looks like for you. That might be a conversation with your wife. Uh, that might be you know, a conversation with friends if you're single. That might be a conversation with me. That might be, you know, an open transparency with your community circle leader and friends. I'm not going to prescribe what that looks like, but I will promise you this. You will never escape the vicious cycle that lust has you in until you begin to confess. The second piece of finding And experiencing victory is not just confession, but it's community. It is. Again, the private, anonymous, individual nature of this particular sin requires other people. And so, you know, the heroic individualism of America, go take a cold shower, it's just not going to work. You have to throw yourself under under the baptismal waters, as it were, that threw you into the life of a church. And so you're not here by mistake. You know, church attendance is not just just to kind of check in and check out. This is your family. And this is the means that God has designed for your sin to be put to death. And as long as you continue to avoid it, you'll continue to fail. You will. Let me close with this. Um, Friday Night Lights TV show. Some of you have seen it. It's one of the few TV shows that my wife and I have actually watched entirely. I don't even know how many seasons there were, six or eight, some obscene amount of episodes. We've actually watched it twice. We're, yes, we liked it that much. So Friday Night Lights is the story of a small town uh, football team in Texas, and Coach Taylor's like this iconic guy. And um, here's, here's the one little thing he always said to his players, and it's always stuck with me, and I've never found a place to use it in a sermon until now. He would always tell his players before a game, after a game, win or lose, whatever it was, he would always say, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. You see, the gospel offers that to people who don't have clear eyes, who are muddied by sin. It offers that to people who have broken fragile, fractured, hurt hearts who all they've experienced is loss and pain. And so we run to these refuges that never really provide what we want anyway. Clear eyes, full hearts can't lose. Psalm 24 tells us this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and here it is, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Jesus offers you a righteousness that will bring you to the hill of the Lord. He offers you a righteousness that will stand up in his court of law. And so, if, if anything from hearing these seven deadly sins. If anything you've heard, hear me on this. Jesus says this. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who would throw themselves at the feet of Jesus, in humility, begging for mercy. He offers you a righteousness that can ascend the hill of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the more we walk with you, sometimes the harder it feels. Lord, we hear your words that say that if we even... Look at another with lust in our heart. We've committed adultery. Lord, your standards are too high for us to keep. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that you've kept the standards for us, not so we can live however we want, but so that we can live the life of freedom that you've promised us. So, Lord, I don't know what this sin looks like in the lives of every individual here, but you certainly do. And Lord, I pray that you would work holiness into our hearts and that you would help us to see the righteousness that Jesus earned for us ought to be lived out in the way we conduct our lives. And so, Lord, we need your help for that. We cannot do that on our own. So, Lord, would you take this sermon series and all of the passages that we have addressed and would you seal them in our hearts and would you make us a changed people for your own glory and for our good, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.